welcome to the Brismis CBRL joint mentoring event. Can I first ask our panelists, uh, starting with Suha, uh, how uh, you would go about uh, the, what would you advise the very basics for first time journal article submitters? Thank you, Tofik, and thank you, everyone. Um, I'm really um, delighted to be here, and I'm glad to see um, all the interest from grad students in, in um, academic publishing. Um, so I think one thing that I actually would love to um, talk about a little bit is um, at JMU's, the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, we work uh, quite extensively with grad students to get their papers published. Uh, we actually have um, a dedicated uh, award for graduate student papers, we, which we award every year um, the best for, for the best graduate student um, uh, article published in JMU. So we are very much dedicated to that. And as we're part, we are the publication of the Association of Middle East Women's Studies, and we have a committee on graduate student mentoring, which if anyone is interested, anyone who works on gender or sexuality in the Middle East and is enter, interested in uh, being uh, paired up with a mentor, usually a senior uh, faculty member, a senior um, uh, academic who works on um, Middle East studies, um, you know, gender uh, and sexuality in the Middle East, um, you know, please um, send me an email um, and I'm happy to connect you with, 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 um, with our committee. Um, so we do have uh, sort of almost like an um, an embedded mentoring um, system for grad students who are interested in publishing. Um, and um, obviously, you know, um, when grad students submit their papers for publication, we encourage them to uh, have, you know, acquired as much feedback as possible prior to submitting it from their advisors or other mentors that they work with. Um, and uh, we, you know, it is important that to think about what the, the, you know, the scope of the journal that you're submitting to is, right? So, uh, for example, in JMU's, uh, sometimes we do, because we are the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, sometimes we get, um, uh, you know, like submissions from folks who work on like, you know, like osteoporosis in Iranian women. And, um, you know, like we, we, it's great, but we don't publish that, right? We are a journal in the social sciences, like the interpretive social sciences and humanities. And so it is important to read the guidelines, you know, like the journal's description of itself, what it does, its scope uh, as a first step in order to determine whether this journal is a good fit for your for your research for your for your work um, in terms of its its scope and its readership and um, and to um, you know um, look at the like read the submission guidelines um, guidelines for authors pretty um, you know thoroughly um, and be in touch I, I think it's something that folks don't do enough um, feel free to reach out to the editors, you know, um, to, um, to ask questions like, um, do you think that, um, you know, I'm working on this topic or I'm interested in potentially publishing on this? Do you have advice for me about this? Is this something that JMUs would be interested in? Um, so start a channel of communication um, with, with the editors. It's not frowned upon. Yes, folks are busy, but I think many of us are really invested in grad students and encouraging them to get published. Thanks, Maybe we could hear Lloyd's comments on this. 
Okay, thank you very much. Well, I guess this question is really designed for the first time general submissions. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for the first time general submissions, I think what we can do, we can apply this to, for example, students who are maybe second or third year PhD level. And one of the criteria for PhDs in the UK is originality. So we all have something original to say. Now, in terms of a general submission, what you need to think about is perhaps contributing something that is, for want of a better term, the heart of your thesis. So, for example, you talk about your lit review and your method methodology, but then when you get into the depth of your thesis, you really get to the nitty-gritty, the heart of the thesis, and that is what we want. We want articles which really demonstrate your thinking, your critical analysis, and your originality. I think that is the best piece of advice that I can give to potential scholars today. You know, you have to be original. You have to have something to say. We've all got something to say, but is it worth hearing? Okay, so that, that is what you need to think about. We want to hear something that's really fresh, something new, something innovative, okay? If you have a doubt about something, as Soha said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with reaching out to the editor and saying, look, I've got an article ready to go and it's about this. What do you think? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Please do get in contact with us. We're human beings. We're quite friendly. We want to provide a service to you. Okay. So please do, you know, don't think we're, we're kind of like giants and we're going to stamp on you. Okay. We want to help you. You are the future. Okay. So get in contact with us and show us your originality. Les Lloyd, thank you. Sarah, your thoughts? Any? Yes, thank you. Um, I think um, to some extent to carry on from what Lloyd was just saying, um, you know, if you've been accepted on a PhD program, then it's already assumed that you have something original to say. Um, and I think one of the things that often um, PhD students or early career researchers looking to get published for the first time suffer from is a lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're still assuming that it's the names, it's the professors, it's the readers, it's the senior lecturers who are the ones who find it easy to get published, who, um, you know, are the ones who've kind of really got important work to share. Um, I did a very similar event to this for um, the uh, politics and international relations department of uh, a British university during lockdown. So I think mean, sort of 18 months or two years ago um, with the editor of, now I can't remember what it is because I'm not a political scientist, but the number one journal in political science. And one of the questions we got asked was this one of, you know, does it matter who you are? when you send in an article. And one of the things that was common ground between myself, editor of Contemporary Levant, which is a fairly comparative new journal, I think we've been going for about seven years now, um, and this, you know, top impact politics journal. And that was that both of us said that we have turned down more articles from established scholars than we have from early career researchers because once people get, and of course, not everybody does this, but there is a bit of a tendency that once people get their feet under the table, 
they maybe aren't as fresh and original and challenging and critical as as we'd like you to be and it's the exciting articles that um often do come um from from early career researchers so you know obviously you also have to get your you know your ducks lined up in a row you need to make sure that you are engaging with the literature properly um you know that you've sorted out your your theory and, and your methodological basis and all of this kind of thing but don't be intimidated by the idea that because your early career you're not going to get the same kind of hearing as somebody established actually um it's something that we very 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 much welcome um so you know and, and, and as both Sohar and Lloyd have said, you know, if you want to talk beforehand, whether that's about subject, whether it's about content, whether it's about timeframes, all of those sorts of things, you know, the emails are all on our respective um, journal websites. So do just, you know, get in touch. It's, it's okay to do that. Indeed, indeed. But I, I think that the main points that both you and uh, Lloyd were mentioning is also is really important so far as so it's such an intimidating process and can also be the, the stories that one hears are also particularly demoralizing. So I think uh, giving first time uh, first time researchers who first time submitting for journals is, is, is the confidence is, is something very important. So I thank you for underscoring that point. Uh, allow me to transition to the next question, which has to do with journal selection. And uh, what would you folks say regarding how uh, a, an early career researcher would go about trying to identify an appropriate journal for, for their work? Suha. Yeah, I think um, um, the first step is to, you know, talk to people you know who um, are experts in your field, talk to your advisors, to your, um, you know, your mentors and ask them. Uh, they will probably have good suggestions for um, uh, journals that would be a good fit. Um, and then, um, you know, do your, do your own research as well, you know, like look at, um, not, you know, I mentioned looking at the submission guidelines and guidelines for authors and things like that, but it's also important to look at the kinds of articles um, that are published in this journal, um, you know, for the last couple of years, right? What do they look like? Do, do you see yourself, do you see your scholarship as fitting in that sort of scope? Um, and, you know, by extension as, you know, a good fit for the readership of that journal. Um, so, yeah, I would say, um, you know, I would say, um, you know, ask around. Word of mouth is important in academia, just as it is in many other fields. But also do your own research, do your own homework to sort of like um, see if this this feels right. You know, this feels like a place where I would like to get published. Great. Thank you, Saha. Uh, Lloyd, any, anything to add to that? Yeah, this one is, is, is quite easy to answer, really. Uh, my suggestion would be to, to um, when you pre prepare your own bibliography in your thesis, look at which journals appear regularly. They come up time and time again, I'm sure. And if there's a, a journal which comes up maybe five or six or seven times in your bibliography, then obviously it fits in quite well with your thesis, with your, with your topic. And, and uh, as Soha has recommended, talk to your supervisors, talk to your friends, talk to your colleagues and see what they think, see what their ideas are. But make sure that your article fits in with the kind of articles which are published by X or Y journal. 
you know i mean for example in my field in my journal sometimes not all the time i get um sent articles about archaeology which are fantastic but they just don't fit and they get rejected immediately and uh, the difficulty with this is that it does take a long time the submission process is digital these days it does take a long time so i don't want you to waste your time you know it's 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 irrelevant i mean i think carefully about where you're going to send it once you've located a certain journal which could be about history or politics which fits with your thesis then of course you know send it here there and everywhere if you get rejected once or twice don't lose heart uh, i think sarah was uh, hit the the nail on the head when she was talking about confidence just now i think this is very very important and one thing that we didn't mention is that these days journal submissions are anonymized so it doesn't matter whether you're a first time submitter or a senior professor once the the journal once once the the article is sent to the referees it's completely anonymized so it really, really doesn't matter. And that should perhaps give you the confidence to submit it to the journal of your wish. Great, thank you. Uh, Sarah, any follow-up comments on that? Yeah, so obviously, you know, to, to, to reiterate what, um, what everyone else has said, I mean, basically, if it's a journal that you would read on a regular basis, then it's probably a journal where your work may well fit. If it's not a journal that you've ever read before, it's, there's probably a reason for that, and it's that <laughs> that's not where you are. Um, the other thing that I would say is that another another route for this, um, and this is to some extent coming from um, personal experience rather than as, in terms of publishing rather than rather than of editing, is that another route to that sometimes worth considering um, is uh, special issues where people put out a call for proposed papers um, with a with a with quite kind of quite a quite a tight remit on the subject area because they're going to do a special issue of a journal on this um, and i'm not saying that, that that you should sort of take a scattergun approach to this but if there is if you see a call for papers and you think absolutely i fit absolutely into that you know that's perfect I, that's so exciting i absolutely have something to say i fit really well into this topic that can sometimes be a a way of getting a certain amount of feedback earlier because quite often you will be asked to submit an abstract um and you may well get um as well as you know as well as um actual yeah, yes or no, you may well get feedback on the abstract. You may well be asked to increase your coverage of X or, you know, uh, add this, this angle on it or something like that. So um, it, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's certainly something worth considering. So, you know, if you're keeping an eye on the listservs in your field, um, be it area studies listservs or whether it's uh, disciplinary ones, um, you know, it, 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 can be, it, it can be worth considering. Um, and certainly um, it's, a, it's a route that I simply went down because I saw, saw calls that just excited me, um, including the one for my first ever publication, which was with the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, um, which, you know, was really exciting for me. Um, so, you know, there's, there, there's the sort of, the, the more sort of 
solid conventional route, which is to do all of the things that we've talked about. And then there's that's a sort of, I would say, a sort of side route that can be a possibility um, if you see the right call for you. Um, and I just think it can sometimes be a slightly less uh, hair-raising experience than people sometimes hear about of the conventional journal um, uh, review process. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Um, I see that somebody has raised their hand. I'm not going to take any questions right now, but I will encourage the audience members to put their questions in the question and answer uh, feature on the Zoom, and uh, we'll get to them once we're finished with this sort of moderated discussion right now. So I'd like to transition to the issue of basically your, your specific journals that you are editors or co-editors or assistant editors on, and perhaps speak to the specific unique features of and processes that you embody. So how you spoke earlier about a, a, even a kind of mentorship, which I find to be quite unique in and of itself, uh, but uh, perhaps there are other dimensions of, of, these, of your journals that you'd like to speak to. Um, yeah, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have unique features, as far as I know, from my discussions with other um, colleagues who also serve as, as editors. Um, you know, we follow the, the regular peer review process in general, right? Um, uh, I think, you know, like, as, as Lloyd said, all of our submissions are happen online through an, you know, almost automated system. Um, you know, we're actually transitioning from one system to another next, next um, month. Um, actually later this month. Um, <clears throat> um, and, you know, we get flagged when a journal is submitted. We have a managing editor who will be the one who is usually in touch with the authors about um, issues, um, you know, or any questions or things like that. I'm also reachable, of course, but most of the communication happens through the managing editor. And um, basically, we, you know, once we deem that, you know, this, this article is, um, first of all, in scope of our journal, um, and then second of all, we think it is robust enough, it engages with feminist scholarship, you know, in critical ways, as we expect of all the articles who are that are submitted to to J News. Um, and you uh, know, it's original, it's innovative, um, um, you know, deals with sources, secondary and primary sources in appropriate ways, etc. We send it out for review. Um, to be completely honest, over the past two years, that and I'm sure my colleagues will probably um, share similar, um, you know, uh, concerns or, you know, lamentations, um, you know, it's been very difficult to secure reviewers. Um, everyone is overextended and uh, the past two years have been particularly challenging in our case, you know, for a lot of our authors and reviewers happen to be uh, you know, female identifying individuals or, um, you know, non-male identifying individuals and those, you know, according to a lot of studies that have been published over the past, um, you know, a year or so uh, are the ones who have been um, disproportionately affected by um, the pandemic in terms of um, their, their work-life balance and their, um, you know, um, 
domestic duties versus their their productivity and you know work work um, commitments and things like that. So um, our our reviewers have also been very very you know overextended and it's been difficult to secure reviewers and get them to submit their reports in time and things like that. So this has been this has taken a lot of time on our end to make sure that, to follow up with folks, but also to extend grace and compassion um, to people as as you know life happens um uh, and to you know also be mindful of the fact that for a lot of our authors this is important getting published you know getting their first article published or you know for for uh, junior scholars getting the you know articles published to count towards their tenure or whatever you know these are all important things and need to happen in a timely fashion um i have to say that uh, right now we have quite a bit of backlog actually of manuscripts that are ready for publication that have been accepted for publication. So um, as of now, we are, you know, basically, um, um, you know, backlogged until sometime in early 2024. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the I want to say um, the average time during the pandemic um, uh, to, you know, from the date of initial submission of manuscript to publication um, has been, you know, around a year um but but with the backlog it's going to be it's going to be longer as well well thank you uh the 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 point of this question was also to to have journal editors sort of perhaps because i, I imagine there'll be folks in the audiences who particularly decided to join this event because they were interested in your journals and stuff. So I, I just wanted to highlight that aspect of it. So perhaps Lloyd, if there's anything particular about- uh, It's, it's difficult to think of anything that's really unique about the, the journal. Um, I say that because the, the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies tends to focus more specifically on politics and modern history. And there are a number of, of other journals which do something very, very similar. Um, you know, I, I don't want to denigrate any journal at all, but I mean, you know, there are there are a number of journals doing similar things. But, you know, I mean, like, like, like Soha said, we've also got a huge backlog. You know, there, 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 there's nothing that's going to get published in, in the paper variety for the next two years. And I've stopped special issues for that time because we have such a huge backlog. Now, uh, that's not to say that it, there's no benefit for those articles because they will still get published digitally. It's just that they won't be allocated a space in the print version of the journal, but they are published online and they can be accessed online. Could you clarify it there just uh, for our yeah. audience? So, so basically, as soon as the article is accepted, okay, it can appear on the website in digital form and it can be accessed by, by, by members, okay? All it means is that the print version will not be available for that article until it is allocated space, which could be a further two years away. But if it's if it, what is it dated then? It's dated digitally. So, for example, for academics, academics in the UK are obsessed by the REF Research Excellence Framework. So that if you have an article which is published digitally you can include that within your ref submission okay. okay even if it hasn't appeared in print so if i may say something um this is the case for 
many journals, but not for everyone. Um, so in our case, for example, our publisher Duke University Press doesn't do that. Uh -huh. um, and and uh, you know the the journal the basically the, the the article is assigned to an issue, and um, it, it doesn't get published online until like maybe like a couple of weeks before the 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 print publication. So it 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 might be the case for some journals, but not for for everyone. Yeah. Okay, thank you both for clarifying that. I want to give Sarah an opportunity to talk a little bit about contemplative and, and their process. So yes, um, we at Contemporary Levant, yes, we're certainly in a similar position to Suha and Lloyd. Um, we are now looking at a couple of years worth of backlog for print publication. Um, like British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, we are with Taylor and Francis though. So Again, um, uh, as soon as an article is ready, it's been peer reviewed, it's been revised, it's been proofed, um, it will be published online. So obviously, as Lloyd said, that's been important for British academics because of the REF. If you're an early career researcher, it may well also be important to you in terms of getting stuff onto your CV if you're applying for, for jobs out of your PH, after your PhD and this kind of thing. Um, but yes, I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is an issue for all journals. I think at the moment, there has been a lot of productivity amongst some people during lockdown because there's maybe been less teaching, um, they've been working from home, but there has also been a lot of um, problem with getting reviewers. Um, I think that may also to some extent uh, be slanted by discipline. Um, we know, and this is partly me being, um, uh, feminist and also slightly bitter, um, but also it's been studied on a wider level that um, women are more likely to do academic service, men are more likely to say no to doing peer review, and, um, and that means that if you are in a field where the majority of academics are male, um, and obviously that means sometimes things like um, some slant, uh, some strands of political science, then it can be particularly difficult to get reviewers to say yes to reviewing um, because most of the ones we would approach would be men and they're more likely to say no. Um, uh, the, the main thing I think that is possibly a bit different about the process that we have at Contemporary Levant is that I specifically took the decision not to use the automated submission system um, at Taylor and Francis. So we take submissions via email. Um, and that is principally because I find that that gives me as editor a lot more flexibility in terms of feeling that I can support and help uh, scholars at an earlier stage in the process. Um, and that's partly uh, um, about uh, supporting early career scholars. And it's also, um, uh, I think, um, means that I end up doing quite a lot of supporting scholars for whom, um, who aren't necessarily particularly early in their career, but for whom it's their first time publishing in English. Um, so um, I have a, a kind of a background before I came to academia in my late 30s, early 40s. I spent a long time as a journalist and editor. Um, and so I, 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 I put quite a lot of time 
um, sometimes into supporting um, copy editing um, and style editing uh, for, for ECRs and for contributors um, for whom English is um, a second or third or fourth language. Um, and, I think, and I think that's something where that would be a lot harder for us to do if I used the automated system. Um, I don't think it makes a big difference in terms of how long the submissions system takes. Uh, I think generally our, um, the time it takes to get from submission to uh, online publication for us is largely affected by review um, and how much the peer reviewers are available rather than um, other parts of the process. Um, and sometimes by how long it takes people to do their revisions once things are sent through. Um, but I would say it could be with us, it can be sort of anything from about six months to 18 months, depending on um, those two factors. Thank you, Sarah. You know, while listening to you all three, I, I kind of had just a follow-up question because it came out of the discussion, this question of this backlog. And uh, I, I, I particularly wanted to ask Suha on this point, whether there should be concern that uh, journals that do not engage in the electronic publication, such as was described by, by, by Lloyd, that that might act as a deterrent for people to submit. Or do you feel that that is taking place? Um, you know, as the flagship journal in, in gender and in gender in the Middle East, um, it's not been an issue for us, especially that we instruct our um, authors to once their article is accepted for publication is assigned to an issue, um, which happens, you know, once it's reviewed and, you know, once it is reviewed and revised and goes through the process and is approved, we tell them that they can add it to their um, CV as accepted. So um, it counts for their tenure reviews, for everything else. The article is not accessible, right? Like online or whatever, but, um, but it counts for these purposes, for professional purposes, if you will. Um, so it's not been a major issue, but um, you know, I'm, as, as my colleagues were sort of discussing that, I'm, I'm aware of how this might be perceived as a deterrent, but it's not, to be honest, it's not been an issue for us. Thanks for Claire for that, Siha. So because we've already sort of gotten on to the topic of sort of part of the process, uh, I'd like to hear some thoughts about regarding uh, some of the false assumptions uh, and whether you as editors could shed light on demystifying uh, the process overall. Uh, what are your impressions of the assumptions, false or otherwise, of how this goes about and what, what, uh, what authors should expect uh, when they go through this process? So uh, maybe we start, we reverse it. Maybe we'll go Sarah and then backwards, if that's all right. Go ahead, Sarah. Okay. Um, I think probably the biggest thing that um, I find people maybe worry about is that reviewer two has a terrible reputation. This idea that um, there's always going to be a reviewer of your paper who is going to be really, really horrible and really, really negative and all of this kind of thing. Um, that happens very occasionally. Um, and I would say it's the vast majority of papers, sorry, the vast minority of papers where you get unpleasant review. I've probably, I think I've published about 
20 papers and I think I've had two where someone's been one of one of one of which was somebody who where their only critique was a really really stupid and pointless comment about a, a linguistic issue and then I think I've had one other unpleasant one I think most people who agree to review want to be helpful want to be supportive you know people don't you know people don't get paid extra to review um, it's something that you do as academic service and I think most people when they review want want to do it to be helpful they might be critical and hopefully that critique will be taken in the in the spirit of this is something that will Im actually improve my paper yes sometimes you will get someone who actually doesn't get your paper uh, or who um, uh, you know kind of goes off on a tangent or something but generally speaking um i think peer you know peer review gets a it, you know it's kind of getting quite a lot of bad press and actually i think it can be if it's properly managed it can be a really really helpful um and ideally supportive process um i also see it as my job as an editor especially if i know i'm working with an early career researcher that is if i get review a, a review back from a reviewer that I think is needlessly aggressive, negative, whatever. I see that as my job to um, either go away and find another reviewer or to, um, to, to introduce the reviews that have been sent by saying, you know, I think you need to take notice of these aspects of that review, but I think also this person has been needlessly whatever, and that, that, that to, to make sure that people understand that um, if somebody is being overly negative, that that's not something that should be taken to heart. So just to clarify on that, you, you would take a position to intervene if you felt a review was unfair and potentially get a new review? I wouldn't if I thought the content was fair, but if it's one that is needlessly you know, so so like I said, I had one that was had nothing substantive about to say, to say about my article. They simply didn't like the fact that it had become newfangled fashion to use the term agency to mean something other than you know, like an estate, a real estate agent. Um, and this was this was with a partly. Okay, so I'm going to engage in some stereotyping here. This was with a, an, an, a journal that does a lot of archaeology and one suspects that the person making these comments was um, uh, probably some kind of like elderly Oxbridge duffer in a tweed jacket. Um, and uh, there was nothing useful about that review. It didn't, it didn't give me any useful feedback on my article. If I'd been the editor, I would have just gone, what is the point of that? And gone and found another reviewer. Okay, well, thank you for highlighting that. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I will do that. I think that's part of yeah. my job. Uh, bless, bless. I think that's yeah, very the job, fair, of, the job you know? uh, As far as I'm concerned, my job is to get useful feedback for the writer. If I haven't got that from one reviewer, I will get it from a different reviewer. Bless, that's really encouraging to hear because I think uh, many, uh, many early career folks feel their, their whole futures are in the hands of anonymous people who will just say, and for one reason or another, maybe they had a bad morning or whatnot, they, they, their life or, you know, they, and, and these things are very important because of the- if, someone, if you've had a bad morning, then you should have a coffee and some cake, take your blood sugar <laughs> up and give a nicer review. Fair enough. Well, 
if we knew what the mornings like were like for everyone, maybe that would be a possibility. <laughs> but uh, our time is running short. I want uh, Lloyd to give his comments. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with uh, with Sarah's comments, and I can confirm that in, in my journal, basically, it's the editors who have final say, and it's not the referees. Sometimes the, the referees are early career, and they're lean and hungry, and sometimes they can be a little bit vindictive. vindictive okay, and if that is the case, I mean, I have. Fortunately, I have six really, really excellent assistant editors. And, uh, you know, we're on the side of the uh, potential PhD candidate. Okay. And so if we can see that a, a response from a referee is a bit too harsh, we, we can weed that out and we simply ignore it. Sometimes we, we ignore it and send it out to another referee. So it, it's the editors that have the final say about these things and it's not the referees. Great, thank you very much. Uh, anything around the question of do you mystify? I, I don't have much to add, but um, I want to say that you know if you've been on academic Twitter, you you must have been traumatized, vicariously traumatized by reviewer two, right? That people like sharing you know screenshots of like whatever reviewer two, whatever nasty gram you know they got from reviewer two, and um, you know like I think in those cases like sometimes I feel like the editor didn't do their job, you know like. Um, as, as my colleagues have just said, like as, as, as a feminist journal, we're also particularly invested in, you know, really constructive and supportive feedback. Yes, it can be critical, as Sarah said, but, uh, but it needs to be substantive and meaningful. Um, and so, yes, we have, there, there, there are instances where the vast majority have been helpful, uh, you know, reviews, but there, yes, there are instances where as editors, we do intervene to either, sometimes I have honestly served as a buffer where I, if there is a, a sentence or two that are needlessly nasty and ad hominem or, you know, I would remove them. Like they are not contributing anything to the to the review. Um, they're just nasty. So I would remove them as long as I think that the rest of the review is fair and 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 helpful. Um, and then um, you know sometimes where where I, you know I didn't get anything helpful from a reviewer. Um, you know a reviewer is being particularly you know obsessed with their ego and that like you did not publish this particular article that I wrote in '87. Like. <laughs> whatever, you know, like, um, I'm like, you know, okay, let's find someone else because this is not helpful. Thank you for those comments. So I'm going to get take one more round of what provide give one more question to the uh, panelists, but uh, encouraging uh, the audience members to put their questions in the question and answer feature. And also highlighting the fact that uh, Dr. Bayumi, Dr. Soha Bayumi may have to leave early. So I'd like to be able to get her questions out there first before she leaves. So the final question that I'm going to ask our panelists today has to do with what are the main do's and don'ts uh, that you can advise uh, those submitting? So maybe we start with Sarah first. Go ahead. Do's and don'ts. Um, don't do fancy formatting. Um, some people, you know, send things with wonderful cover sheets and colour and fonts all over the place please all that does is get make me spend time removing it all before I can start to read what you've sent me um times new roman 12 point straight up um it's a waste of your time it's a waste of my time and and, and it will all just get removed um and style guides are there for a reason 
um, sometimes they can be very, very specific and seem very pernickety. And I don't, I don't mean that you should have everything perfect, but it's nice to see that people have bothered to engage with the style guide and, and, and at least tried to follow it because it's, it's part of presenting your work professionally, professionally and appropriately and shows that you've considered the journal that you are sending it to and looked at their guidelines. Um, and it just makes it a lot easier for me to, when I'm doing that first desk assessment and deciding whether to send it out for review, it just removes kind of a, a layer of, of me having to work to engage with what it is that you're saying. If what you want me to do is to be understanding what you're writing and to be appreciating it, don't give me other layers of stuff that I have to get through first um, because it's just gonna be, be a diversion. Um, so I think that the, the big the big do's and don'ts for me are, 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 are those very, very basic things. Um, and also, um, make, I think there's a bit of a tendency sometimes, and this sort of follows back to something that Lloyd said, I think, in our first set of questions, um, which is this sense of, you know, don't be sort of picking little bits off of the edge of your PhD um, or, or sort of small peripheral things, you know, give us something meaty. Um, there's, I think there's a bit of a tendency amongst some people to maybe kind of pick off something off of the edge as a sort of dip your toe in the water um, trial kind of thing. And the problem is, is that if that's something that's not as strong an article, then your first experience is going to be more negative. Um, you know, send something strong, you know, be confident, send something that's worthy of your confidence, um, and that will improve your experience and improve your confidence for, for future um, submissions. Les, thank you. Lloyd, your comments, biggest do's and don'ts. Okay, uh, I'll keep it really short and sweet. Um, I, I'll agree with Sarah. I think the most important thing is to conform, make your article conform with the, the style of the journal, and in particular, the referencing system. If the referencing system is wrong, it goes straight back to the author to get it right. Without a fail. Literally two seconds of my time, so get it right. <laughs> That's it. Okay, very short and sweet. Thank you for that. <laughs> so, uh, um, not much to add. Maybe just one point. You know, um, you know, based on the discussion about style guides, um, transliteration. Um, it's a good idea to really be consistent about your transliteration. Um, see what the style guide is, and it's not helpful to have the same word or name transliterated four different ways in your article. Um, so, you know, it's it's not a good look, but it's also confusing. So, yeah, um, no, just be consistent about that. Okay, great, folks. So I'm going to uh, head to the question and answer feature here uh, about five minutes late, but we're getting there. And I'm trying to look quickly. This I didn't have much time to, I was so engaged by the conversation that I didn't have time to look too closely at the questions, but I'm trying to see if I can find anything particular to relates to Dr. Bayoumi before she has to go. So I see a question here from Diliara Agisheva. 
Do you suggest attaching an abstract when I get in touch with journal editors, as Dr. Bayumi advised, as a first step before submitting the actual paper to the journal? Um, I imagine many journals have that as a very clear aspect of their, their features, but uh, quick answers there, uh, Soha. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I'm assuming that Deliara is referring to like just informally getting in touch with the with the with the editor as opposed to actually submitting the the, the manuscript, which yes would ask you to also submit an abstract and keywords and all of that. But um, you know, yes, it, it wouldn't hurt to uh, you know to to send an abstract or that something that gives um, sort of a clear sense of what your um, your article is about and how how you're dealing with it, what kind of methods you're using and stuff like that so yeah that that would be a good idea great anybody have anything else yeah. to add here? Go ahead, I, I, I can't stress enough how important the abstract is the abstract is the most important part of your article okay. once you once you send the article to me to the to the journal okay and i read the abstract if i think it's good if it has your what question your why question and your how question then i'll send it to review if the abstract is lacking forget it it goes nowhere the abstract is the key. So when you come to write your article, write the abstract last, because you'll find out really what is the importance and the significance of your article. Okay, many people write the abstract first, and then they get write the article and think it's all over and then send it off. Really, that's not the best way to do it. Write your article, read it through several times, and then write your abstract and find out what it's really all about and write out those what questions your why questions and your how questions. It's the heart of your article, the most important thing. If you write to me and send me the abstract, that's far more significant to me than sending me the whole of your article. If you send me the whole of your article and say, will you read this and see if it's appropriate for your under journal, I will say no. I'm being honest, I haven't got the time to read the whole article. I will read the abstract, definitely. Make sure you write your abstract carefully Send it to me by email, that's fine. I will read it and give you my honest opinion. That is the heart of your article. Less, thank you. Sorry, anything to add there? Good on, good on. All right, we've got a, uh, another question from Diliara Agisheva who asks, is it better to break up one's dissertation and publish some chapters from a dissertation as articles or to publish one's dissertation as a book? What do speakers think? Are multiple published articles more valuable than one published book? What do the speakers advise? Uh, and can I ask Suha also to put her email in the chat box because folks are asking for it. So maybe we start off with Sarah and her thoughts while Suha puts uh, things, her email in, in line, in, in the box. Yeah, yeah huge questions. Um, I think the problem is, is that um, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to this. Um, uh, I think I think partly it depends on what your dissertation is like, what's in it, what the opportunities are. Um, I mean, uh, you know, va valuable to whom and how. Um, I think there are some institutions maybe when they're doing job adverts or whatever, kind of see a book as maybe more weighty than a lot of articles, um, but that's not something that I have um, specifically ever come across myself. Personally, for me, um, I 
knew from quite early on in my PhD dissertation that it wasn't a book. Um, I'd written books before, um, some reasonably successful ones. So I, you know, I, I, I felt that I had a, um, the, the ability to judge that. And I didn't think it was a it was a book, but I got I think in the end I got something like nine articles out of it um, or book chapters. Um, so, you know, um, uh, certainly in terms of ref points in the UK system, that was just that was everything that I needed. Um, and certainly in terms of sort of you know where my publication record has taken me career wise, it's it's given me everything that I needed. Um, I think there is you know there are some people and some institutions that maybe have a certain snobbery around it. But I, I don't think you, that people need to, you know, kind of get too hung up about this when they're PhD students. I think, I think you know, to some extent, I think it can be, I think to some extent it's about um, being flexible, grabbing opportunities when they come, rather than necessarily trying to force everything that you do into into a one-size-fits-all mold. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah uh, I'm going to jump to Suha to get her thoughts on this, because this might be the last time that she can answer something, because I know she has to duck out early. But uh, your thoughts on break, uh, breaking up book versus journal articles? Yeah, um, you know, it's... It's, it's, I think it's a matter, it, it really depends on the publisher. I'm going to talk about um, academic publishers um, uh, in the, in the US, um, you know, um, it's, it's sometimes problematic. Some publishers, some book publishers find it um, sort of a, a negative that you will have published, um, you know, that you would have published some chapters of your of your uh, dissertation as articles during your grad school years. Um, so it's something to take into account, you know, like what publishers you potentially have in mind for your dissertation turn into a book, and um, you know what their policies are. It's a good idea to connect with those publishers um, in advance, potentially with editors. You know, of you know, if there's a Middle East series, um, you know, um, Middle East Middle East series editor in a particular um, in a particular um, uh, press that you potentially interested in. It's a good idea to talk to them first and see what they advise, um, because um, in, you know, in in the American in the U.S. system. Um, different publishers have different takes on that, book publishers. So if you're thinking long-term about turning your dissertation into a book, it's, it's a good idea to think, to, to, to be aware of that. Um, I think that, you know, a chapter being published as, as, a, as a book, as a, excuse me, in a journal, in a, as a journal article should not be a problem. Like most publishers will find that fine, you know, because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a normal part of the, the process. Okay, great. Thank you, Saha. Uh, and if you need to go, please uh, do what you need to do. Uh, and obviously, I'll actually, I'll give you, if you have anything more to say, Saha, I'm going to just give her another two minutes, Lloyd, if you uh, allow me. Saha, anything else you want to add on to this before you? No, um, no, I think, I hope this was helpful. Whatever I had to say was helpful. Um, please, uh, I put my email in the chat um, and the journal's email as well. If you have any uh, questions or would like to, um, you know, 
just chat about a, a potential article you have in mind, feel free to reach out. Uh, or if you're also interested in um, mentoring opportunities through the Association of Middle East Women's Studies. So please be in touch. Thank you all very much. And I'm so sorry I have to duck out a little bit earlier. Um, but uh, it was it was a great conversation and I learned a lot from my colleagues as well. So really appreciate yes, this uh, opportunity. So thank you, thank you, for thank your you everyone. And Take your care. knowledge and your generosity with your, your insights. So great. And thank you for, for your participation. Thank so you. thank take you very care. Much. And care. Uh, we bless up. We will transition to Lloyd. Uh, your thoughts on the journal versus. Yeah. I, I don't think there are any hard and, and clear cut um, rules about this. So I can only talk about what I would prefer my students to do. And I suggest to them that it's perhaps better to, to save as much as possible to get a book out because I have a feeling that there's still a bit of snobbery among publishers and it's maybe worthwhile to get a book out in the end. Also, in addition to that, I don't think there's any harm to get a, one article out of the PhD, even if you turn it into a book. Because fundamentally, I still think that there's basically um, one unique idea for a PhD. And I think if you can summarize that unique idea and put it into an article, you could perhaps draw together various strands from different chapters into that one article and make it like, well, if you read this article, you can read so much more in the book. So I think therefore having, having one article and one book is a good way to go about it. I think however, if you have maybe two or three articles and a book, obviously you're diluting the impact of the book and it's something that I think the other speakers have said really publishers do not like that at all. Yes indeed. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I have a question I'm going to go Wa'al Omar's question which is slightly related. Will there be any conflicts or issues if I decide to publish a chapter prior to submitting my dissertation? Uh, Sarah. Um, it, again, it slightly depends on the publisher. Um, uh, quite often, um, copyright means that you will need to acknowledge and possibly get permission if you have, say, a chapter in your book is very closely related to a, an article that you wrote. But that shouldn't be a problem. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't be normal for somebody to go, no, you can't possibly do that. And if you look at a lot of uh, academic books, you will find in the um, acknowledgements at the beginning, there will be, you know, thank you to Journal X for um, giving me permission to, to re, you know, to use material that um, originally appeared in such and such an article. Um, there is such a thing as self-plagiarism so you know directly copying things is usually not acceptable um but you know as other people have said you know there is an academic system it is usually pretty widely and well understood by academic journal and book publishers um you know they are used to this symbiosis so it's not you, you are you're never going to be the first person who's asked this um, of a of a publisher when you when you when you um, you know when you ask to um, for confirmation that it's okay to use the same material for, for um, a chapter that you used in an article um, they will have had it a million times before. 
Great, thank you. Lloyd, anything to add there? Uh, no, just that uh, I agree with everything that Sarah has said. Just be careful that you, you reference yourself properly if you do publish beforehand, uh, before that is published, before you, you submit your thesis. Um, I, I should say that I encourage my students, especially in, in their second year, to think about submitting to, to journals in the second year and also to participate in international conferences in the second year to get obviously more, more and more experience. So I think, you know, so long as you, you make the appropriate references and you don't plagiarize yourself, you know, you, you're, you're standing on, on firm grounding. And certainly it's something that um, if you're looking for a job, basically in the UK, if you don't have publications, you won't even get an interview. So it's absolutely essential for you to have like a, a journal article or articles and or a book. If you have that, then, you know, fingers crossed, you, you stand a chance. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have uh, four questions, but they're all from the same gentleman. I, it doesn't bother me too much, but uh, <laughs> I also don't want to... Uh, uh, <laughs> Sort of squeeze out other opportunities and I believe some of these questions have actually been taken up I mean Muhammad your question regarding who's making the final judgment whether mm. it's the editor or the reviewer that was answered it's, mm. it's the editor uh, I think I, I, go ahead you have to I, just, I, I did want to chip in there because I do think it is worth making it very clear because also one of one of Muhammad's other questions is about if two um uh, peer reviewers say that an article is good, does that automatically mean publication? The peer review process is there to advise the editor. Um, if, you know, the fact that, that I bothered to send it out for peer review implies that I feel there is something there that is worth at least considering for publication. Um, and if both of the peer reviewers come back saying, yes, this is really good, you know, maybe this needs tweaking, da, 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 um, then I will probably, I, there are, I can't think of many reasons why I would then turn around and say no. But in the end, it is the journal editor who has the final say. Um, the peer reviewers are there to, 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 to inform their decision-making process which is also why I can look at a negative one and go, actually, no, I think that you just had a bad morning and, um, and I'm, you know, I'm going to not use that one or I'm going to edit it. Okay. But just uh, to be really clear on what that process is and, and who makes the decisions. Sure. Thank you for touching on that. Mohammed had another quick question uh, related to quoting oneself. Uh, in from another published article, Hugh, you have uh, excuse me. Why I call you? Keep on, keep on, you, Hugh. Lloyd, Lloyd, uh, yeah, there. That, that's that's no problem. But just you know, treat yourself as you would any other academic. Do it respectfully and don't overquote yourself. Paraphrase and make yourself, you know, maybe three or four lines at most. But don't overquote yourself. Otherwise. It's kind of like, you know, well, this guy seems to be blowing his own trumpet too much, you know. So just yeah. be a little bit, little bit judicious and cautious. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm I mean, if you're in a, in a really niche field, sometimes it's hard not to need to at least cite yourself in factually, even if not quote yourself. But yeah, if you do it too much, you're just going to look like an idiot. 
<laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, one other question he had related to whether PhD students take up roles in the journals. Uh, could you shed light at least on the two journals that you guys run? Lloyd. Yeah, in, in terms of let's say the more senior positions, it's I don't think we've ever had um, a PhD student being an assistant editor. Having said that, we, we, we do um, ask PhD students to review articles, but that tends to be PhD students who are perhaps towards the end of their period of study. So they perhaps are, are more experienced, but certainly PhD students have a role to play, but as I said, not in the more senior um, elements of the journal. And that's perhaps because it's only when you get to a senior position, you, you build up networks over years and you know who the people are in the field. So it's, it's inevitable that those kind of positions will be filled by the more, you know, people who have been around for, for some years. Sarah, anything else? Yeah, um, so I mean, similar position with us. So just as an illustration, Contemporary Levant put out a call uh, a month or two ago um, because we wanted to um, expand the number of people that we had sort of uh, on call, as it were, for doing book reviews. Um, and one of the things that we specified in that was that people should be third year or later in their PhDs. And that's not because people um, who've done masters and um, or early in their PhD don't have anything useful to say, but they often don't have the breadth of knowledge of the literature. They literally haven't had enough time in the academic world reading and going to conferences and hearing stuff to, to, to be able to judge a book or an article against its peers, which is what you want from a book reviewer or what you want from a peer reviewer. So yes, I would use PhDs as peer reviewers. I would use them as book reviewers, but, late, but as, as Lloyd said, later on PhDs because you need to have that breadth of knowledge and breadth of, of, um, of sort of acquaintance with, with, the, with, the, with the wider literature. Um, the one uh, instance where I would make an exception to that is, is also people who've got extensive professional experience in their field that's non-academic. Non so often you may, may, may get say, um, uh, archaeologists or people who've worked for a long time in the development field, say, for instance, and then gone to anthropology, those sorts of things. If it's somebody who has, you know, been in their field for a long time and then gone into a PhD, it may well be that that, that they that I would consider them slightly differently. Um, so practitioner experience is, is the phrase I'm looking for. But but yeah, um, I think I think as a PhD student, in your first and second year, you should be concentrating on your doing your PhD anyway. <laughs> I think going and doing too, too many other things is actually not necessarily useful as well. Speaking of somebody who did far too many other things. Well, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs> thank you. Thank you for your answers there. Uh, Mohammed. we're going to transition to other, other folks who have <laughs> asked questions on there. Just, uh, But there is one that follows up from your last question that's coming from Marianne Dhenin who asks, what options do we have as students or PhD candidates to get involved in academic publishing besides submitting an article? And this, she, she had asked also the question, do your journals ever use advanced PhD students as reviewers as well? 
So I think we've basically uh, answered that. It's, it's yes, but. Yes, but Lloyd? Yeah, uh, as I said before, I think um, PhD students, we do use them sometimes to review journals, but it does tend to be second or third year PhD students. Uh, you know, it, it's a matter of, as, as Sarah said, it's a matter of getting the PhD students to have the breadth of knowledge, to have the networks of, of colleagues in the field. And it's only at later periods of study that you, you develop that. Gotcha. Thank you, Lloyd. Uh, we've got one, uh, two questions from Moral Shamshiri. Oh. Hello, Moral. Yeah, yeah, okay. I heard a voice. Uh, Moral actually uh, was uh, part of the organizing committee of this webinar. So uh, indeed, hello, Moral. And she has puts forth two questions. How many rounds of review do articles in your journals usually go through? And <laughs> how do you go about selecting reviewers? Are they members of your boards or externals? Good questions. Thank you. Uh, so, Sarah. Uh, okay, so how many rounds of review? Um, so firstly, I will do a desk review, which basically means looking at it and going, am I gonna send this for peer review? Um, that might be straight up yes, and then I start approaching peer reviewers, um, or I might send it back if, as Lloyd mentioned before, the referencing system's completely off, um, or there are other kind of major issues with it. But but I think it is has got something in it that's then going to be worth looking at for peer review later on. Um, it will then go through usually two peer reviewers. Um, so that's another layer. Um, it will then, from there, I will look at the peer review, uh, consider, you know, whether I think anybody has, you know, just got out of bed on the wrong side that morning, or, you know, whether things are useful and what it says. Um, if the, the, the sort of broad consensus is, let's go forward with this, I will then send it back to the author. Um, I will probably summarise the main points that I think are most important from the peer review that I feel they need to, to, to pay most attention to. Um, so that will then go through that process of, you know, and that may involve the, 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 the author having to do more reading, adding substantive material, or it might be something that's very, very, you know, a very slender part of the process. It will then come back to me and I will then um, usually do quite uh, an extensive copy edit, style edit. Um, I don't trust the proofreading at pretty much any publisher in existence anymore because most of them are now terrible. Um, so I will usually do a, a, a pretty comprehensive um, style edit and proofread on it. And you, you'd then get it back. You know, most of that I would do in track changes or comments. So again, you know, a bit like the peer review, that's something that is to some extent discursive. And if you disagree with me, as long as you have a good reason for that, I will engage. But it will also involve things like, so we publish in, we, we use British English. Um, so I will turn all of your Zs into Ss. Um, you know those those sort of little things, and I won't be, I won't bother to track change that because that's non-negotiable, but also really trivial and mainly down to my personal nerdiness. Um, uh, and that should be, and, and it then goes to production, so it is then laid out by Taylor and Francis, and they send you the laid out proofs. 
to approve and that's your last opportunity to go oh my god there should be a comma there um you won't be allowed to make any substantial changes at that point it will very much be you know noticing if there's any tiny things or making sure that the layout process hasn't screwed anything up because that does sometimes happen um so it's it's about you making sure that the laid out version of the article is what you submitted and what you want to to put across uh, and then if that all goes okay the next thing that happens is it appears online and you're published um, and in terms of selecting reviewers um uh so the members of my board i regard as my sort of first line of reviewers so that if it fits what they do i would they they i would regard them as having at least a certain compunction to say yes if i ask them to do it um i will then go beyond them if um the subject is too far from anybody's speciality or something like that so it could be either Thank you, Sarah. Before I go to Lloyd for his answers on this, I want to apologize. Somebody had put a question up there and I accidentally deleted it. So we basically only have around 15 minutes or even less than 15 minutes before the end of this uh, webinar. But I want to ask who might have put that question up, which was just before Moral's question, uh, to put it up there or anybody else who's in the audience to put their remaining questions so we can sort of get them cleared before the end of the webinar. Uh, with that said, I will go to Lloyd uh, to take up Moral's questions. How many rounds okay. of review the articles go through and how do you go about selecting reviewers? Uh, thank you very much for that. In terms of um, how many times articles go for review, at the moment, um, I must stress this, at the moment, I leave it entirely down to my assistant editors how many times it goes out for review or how many times uh, we go back and forth. However, I'm thinking of changing this and becoming a bit heavy handed simply because of the backlog that we have. So my, my preference would be for an article, at the moment we have my, minor revisions and major revisions. If an article has major revisions, I think it's only fair that it, it be sent back to, to the author to revise. And then if it comes back for minor revisions, that's fine. But if it keeps coming back with major revisions, then my my hunch is that this shouldn't be accepted, unfortunately. But at the moment, we haven't got that far. At the moment, I'm just thinking about implementing this kind of system because of, of the huge backlog that we have. In terms of who decides uh, the reviewers, basically, again, that is a matter of um, letting my assistant editors decide because, of course, they are the experts in their particular field, although, on occasions, you know, I can advise them about who to, to send it to. We don't tend to use our board members that frequently. It tends to go outside of the journal and outside of business. Okay, but just to stress, it, it may seem a, a bit strange that we have this journal called the British Journal for Middle Eastern Society. There's not much British about it, to be perfectly honest with you, because the journal sends its, its articles to international scholars in North America, it's in the Middle East, to Australia, to everywhere, in the same way that we receive articles from the same area. Yeah. So in short, it's really down to my assistance. Uh, okay, uh, how do you go about selecting them though? The assistance, is that what you said? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, great. 
Well, but I mean, as I said, I mean, if if they have difficulty finding certain referees, then we have you know email exchanges with one another, and we recommend people in 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 various fields to them. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, there's no more questions in the question and answer, uh, nor that I can see in the chat, and I may have been mistaken with the impression that I actually deleted somebody. Well, uh, you'd originally said that you thought that Morel put up two, and I think she only put one up. No, she put up one, because, but she actually says two questions. So mm. oh, right, I okay. there was another yeah. one just before that was also green. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but we answered it. Uh, we did, we answered it. Okay, excuse yeah. us. All right. So uh, there's still 25 uh, people on this webinar. So it's a great turnout. And I, I really want to thank our panelists for the insight that they've been able to uh, provide uh, in terms of insider knowledge of the process. And I hope it's been helpful. I had a question that's out there that I feel that, that hasn't been taken up and it <laughs> relates to part of the underside of this world. It, 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 but I think it's important to get it out there. What do you folks, uh, I want you to speak, to do you have some early career folks may consider the option of dual submission to multiple <sighs> journals. So could I hear your thoughts on that too? Because actually partly what you folks have said actually might encourage such a, such a practice because of this huge backlog. So can you just tell us what editors think of that? Well, for, for, from my perspective, it's an absolute no-no. Absolute no, no. If you, if you get caught out and the, the journal, it's not me that does this, the journal does it for us. If they find out that you have submitted your article to another journal, basically both journals will absolutely take a, a drastic steps and reject you straight away. Okay, good to know. So I hope that was clear. Sarah, anything more to add there? Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, most of us are working within alarmingly small networks and if you do it people will, will, will and if you certainly if you do it more than once people will start to know about it and you know it's it's something that is yeah it's not worth the risk I mean the thing is is that the, 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 you know the initial process of deciding whether we're going to send it to peer review is usually pretty quick so it's not really that worth it's not that not really that worth doing it doesn't really gain you anything. And it, the risk of doing it is that actually you entirely shoot yourself in the foot. Well, well said, Sarah. No. And, and if the article is half decent, it'll get published anyway. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well said. well said, well said. Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, there's no more questions out there and it's been a very successful, insightful, uh, active, lively discussion. So I'd like to thank both of our panelists today. That's Lloyd Ridgen uh, from uh, Bijmus and uh, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Irving from uh, Contemporary Levant. Of course, we also previously, previously had Dr. Soha Bayoum from uh, JMUSE. And uh, so I'd like to thank you all for your participation today.